Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes in his book on Christian fellowship and life together, he writes, the more deeply we grow into the Psalms and the more often we pray them as our own, the more simple and rich will our prayers become. So the Psalms, they guide how we should pray. They teach us how to pray things in line with the word of God and not just out of self-focused selfishness or sinful desires that James warns us of not to pray. uh, But as we go through the book of Psalms, sometimes there's Psalms we'll come to that we just don't relate to. We could at maybe some point earlier in our life or later in our life, like take Psalm 56, for instance. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. And maybe some of us, no one's attacking me. I can't really relate to this. But instead, what the psalm does, it points us to Christ, what Christ faced upon our behalf. Or it reminds us of what's facing the church universal, that there are spiritual forces of darkness attacking the church at all times that seek to devour us. So if there's one thing before we get into the psalm today that I want you guys to take with you is just to pray the psalms, whether it's just starting Psalm 1, praying that one day, Another day, pray through Psalm 2 or some other systematic way. The Psalms shape us, they shape us into the image of Christ through our prayers. And so these Psalms, not only are they good for teaching, reproof, instruction, just like all of Scripture, and they were inspired by the Holy Spirit for each author that wrote it, but the Holy Spirit also inspired the compilation of the Psalms, how they were put together, how they were arranged, and the order of them. So when we look at the book of Psalms, it's similar to the Pentateuch or the five books of the Torah of instruction that the psalm is split into five books. Um, After Psalm 41, 72, 89, and 106, we see this doxology that looks different in each place, but each time it says something along the lines of, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. So the compilers of the book of Psalms, they split it up into these five separate books. And each book, as we go along, has a different overarching theme. So if we start in book one, it's about the establishment of God's kingdom, that he's reigning through his appointed king, which at the time many of those Psalms were written, that was David, but ultimately now it points us to Christ. And then book two shows us that this kingship of David, this covenant was transferred to his son or to the future son of David, that it's centered on this hope of the future coming of the messianic king. And then we get to book three, and then there's this juxtaposition of, hey, we have this future hope of a king, but now we're in exile we're stuck in Babylon or Assyria, or maybe we've come back to Jerusalem, but we don't have a king. And it's at that point when we have a crisis of faith. Like, does God really keep his promises? He promised David there would be always a king, that there would be a king that would reign for eternity. So what's going on? And we identify with those psalms, because right now we too, in this world, we're 
exiles in Babylon, sojourners on this earth waiting the future coming of our king. Um, And then book four, it calls us to faithfulness in the absence of the king. That this is how we should live when we look around us and our circumstances and expectations don't align with what we put our faith in. So the Psalms in book four remind us over and over again that the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. That even when it seems that darkness is reigning, no, it's the Lord who reigns. And then this final book, book five, starting with Psalm 107, talks about our faith shouldn't just be this trust, but it's a living faith that changes how we live our lives, that shapes how we act, how we behave, our attitudes, how we speak to one another, how we serve one another. And we have this longest psalm in the book of Psalms and the longest chapter in the Bible in Psalm 119, all about the instruction of the Lord, how we should obey and listen and value the preciousness of the Word of God. And then book five continues on talking about how this promise of the messianic king, he's going to come and slay the wicked. He's going to do away with all evil. And he's going to lead his people into the way of righteousness. And then the book ends with these five psalms of praise. Psalm 146, 147, 148, 149, and 150, they all begin and end with, Hallelujah, praise Yahweh, praise the Lord. And Psalm 150 actually says that 13 times. Praise the Lord with everything you have, your whole being, every breath you take. And so Psalm 139 that we're going to look at today, it falls in the middle of that section of book five. That comes after the beginning, which calls us to faithfulness and trusting in the Lord. Comes after 119, showing that we should remain in the instruction of the Lord and value the preciousness of the Word of God. And then Psalms 120 through 34 talk about the Psalms of Ascent as we get closer and closer to the presence of God. It should change and shape the way we live our lives. And then 135, 136, 137 reminds us back of how God was faithful to his promise, and he's going to continue to be faithful. And then from 138 to 145, there's these psalms of promise that God will come to slay the wicked and he will come to lead his people. So, for example, in 141, verses 3 and 4, the psalm writer writes, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to any evil to busy myself with wicked deeds in company with men who work iniquity. Let me not eat of their delicacies. And then this section ends with 145 and verses 20 and 21. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. And that goes right into those five psalms of praise that I just talked about. So, we're going to take a look at Psalm 139 and how it falls into this section of crying out to God for deliverance from the enemies and to guide us in the way we live. So, 
Let's read Psalm 139. <clears throat> to the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray. God, as we read this psalm, as we start to study this psalm, God, we ask that you would open our eyes, open our ears, help us to see the greatness of you. How you are worthy to be praised. You are worthy of being loved. You are the only one who is worthy of being praised. God, let that lead us to a life of obedience. Help us to hate the sin in our lives and to destroy it. God, as we go on in our weeks, let us remember this psalm. Let us remember your character. In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so the psalm starts off with expanding our view of God, dealing with those three great incommunicable attributes that we don't share with God that we kind of think of first whenever we think of God, his omniscience, that he knows all things, his omnipresence, that he is everywhere, his omnipotence, that he's all-powerful and sovereign. And when we see God in greater measure, it increases our love and our worship and obedience of him. 
So when we look at Psalm 139, these first six verses deal with God's omniscience, his all-knowing. And he's truly omniscient. And when we talk of God and what his character is like, what his actions mean for his people, we have to be careful not to separate that, separate those two things of what it says about God and what it means for his people. Because God is a deeply personal God. If we separate the two, then we talk of God as great and mighty and majestic, as a refuge, a rock, a help. And we do huge dishonor to his name when we do that. Because he's not just a refuge. To his people, he is my refuge. He's not just a rock, but my rock. Not just a redeemer, as we sang earlier, but he is my redeemer. He's my help. If we think of Jacob, after he tricked his father into giving him the inheritance, and Esau was angry and wanted to murder him, and so he was fleeing to the land of his relatives. He lays down and has this dream of the staircase with angels coming and going up to heaven and down to earth, up to heaven and down to earth. And God tells him that he's going to renew his covenant that he made with Abraham and Isaac, his fathers, and now he's going to make it with Jacob. That he's going to give him a land, he's going to make him a multitude of people. And through his family, all the world's going to be blessed. And so Jacob responds to that and it says, if you bring me back here safely, then you will be my God. You won't just be the God of Abraham and Isaac, but you'll be my God. So then years pass, and after he comes back from the land of Laban, and God renames Jacob to Israel, and he comes back into good fellowship with his brother Esau where the land that he buys and pitches his tent, he builds an altar there, names the altar El Elohe Israel. God, the God of Israel. That he is now the God of Israel. He is his God, not just the God of his fathers. Where Jesus tells us this warning in Matthew 7 that there will be many that come to the gates of heaven saying, Lord, Lord, did I not cast out demons in your name, did I not do mighty works? And he's going to tell them, depart from me, for I never knew you. Because our God is a deeply personal God that he desires to know his people and for us to know him. And he knows us intimately. When we look at these six verses, he knows everything about us. Whenever we sit down and we rise up, Wherever we go, wherever our path leads us, whenever we lie down, he knows all our ways. And not only does he know our ways, he knows our very thoughts, our words before we even say them. And he hems us in behind and before that he doesn't just know us now, but he knew us in the past and in the future, both behind and before. And so when we think about that, when we think how much knowledge God has of this intimate knowledge of every person that follows after him. And then we think of ourselves and maybe we're married and we think we know our spouses pretty well, but we know that we don't know them completely. 
We're always learning new things about them. But God, he knows us intimately and completely. And such knowledge is too high for us. Like We can't attain that, as the psalm writer writes in verse 6, that it's too wonderful for us. And so when we think of that, we're tempted to despair because no one gets me, no one understands me, but God does. God completely knows us. He completely understands us. And he intimately knows us. He has a personal relationship with us. So then, not only does God know us completely then, in the next six verses we see his presence goes everywhere. That there's nowhere where we can go that a spirit is not there. Whether no matter the height in the heavens, or no matter the depth in the grave and shale, or whether we go to the far east where the wings of the morning are, where the sun rises, or we go to the far west in the sea, because if we remember that the psalm writer is from Israel, uh, to the west of Israel is the great Mediterranean Sea. Um, so no matter if it's land or it's sea, even there, God is present and he leads and guides his people. Even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. That he leads us by the hand. He guides us. And so when we think we're all alone in our struggles, when the darkness is covering us, when the enemies around us be too great, when the despair of the troubles in our world weigh on us too deeply and we think no one sees us, I'm all alone. That even the darkness is not dark to the Lord. He is with his people. And it's amazing. So we see that God knows his people intimately and he's always with his people. And then in the next four verses, the psalm writer lays out God's power, his omnipotence, that he is the creator. He created each and every one of us. Not only is the creator, but he is the sovereign king. That he decrees and makes not only our very lives, like our being, but our entire lives. Our every day is numbered and decreed by God. That he is completely sovereign. And when we think about that, it's just this great and mighty thing. But too often when we look at these four verses, we just take out verse 13 and 14, and just like we kind of strip out Philippians 4.13 or Jeremiah 29.11 from its context, its text, and we twist them to just kind of this form of therapeutic deism. That God does his thing, I'll do my thing. If I need him, I'll go to him. But for the most part, I'm just going to grab the things that make me feel good, make me sound good, make me feel all warm and fuzzy. Like, hey, I'm a princess or prince because I'm the child of the king. I've been adopted. And instead of focusing on the king, instead of focusing on the God who does that, it's all, it's all about me. But like I said earlier, we can't separate what Scripture says about God and what it means for us. When we just talk of God and not his personal nature, 
We make them abstract and far. But when we talk just of ourselves, our faith no longer in Christ, but instead it's self-focused, it's selfish, it's self-absorbed. So when we strip these two verses from the context of leading us to the praise of the Lord, it's like seeing this great tapestry that's playing out this beautiful story. And we're like, I like this part. And we cut out and maim and destroy this tapestry just so we can have a hat to wear because it makes us look or feel good rather than looking at this beautiful tapestry and letting it lead to praise of the designer of this story. So these verses and their context are meant to lead us to the praise and worship and obedience of this great and mighty God who intimately knows his people, is always with them, and form their very being and lives. And what does, what does verse 14 say? I praise you. I praise my God, whose works are wonderful. And he not only forms us in our mother's womb, but as we said earlier, he writes in his book every day that was written for us. That before we even existed, our days were numbered, our lives written down. Whether we would repent and believe in Christ and be saved, or whether we would follow after our own way into death and condemnation. And whatever the Lord writes down, nothing can stand in the way of it. It is written that the Lord works his purposes, and nothing can stand in front of it. Ephesians 1.11 says, The Lord works all things according to the counsel of his will. So then we think of our lives and something happens. Even when someone means to do us harm, they have ill will against us. They're malicious. And God allows such a thing to happen. That for his people, for those who love him, Romans 8.28 lays out that we know for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. If we think of Joseph who was sold into slavery by his brothers, and later on he tells them, I know you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So now let me say this. When God he sovereignly calls his people to himself and gives them the gift of faith by grace, this is never because of something in us, some merit, something we do now or sometime in the future. It's not because we were smart or humble enough to understand the gospel. No, it's always because of Christ. That we who were dead in our sins and trespasses are saved by grace so that no one can boast. It's not in and of ourselves at all. The Father simply decreed that it would be so and granted to us repentance as it lays out in 2 Timothy 2.25 or points us to believe, as it says in Acts 13, 48. And so the Father decrees this, and Christ then takes those names of his people upon himself and pays their debts. And the Spirit opens their eyes so that they can see and understand the beauty of the mercy and kindness of God, despite our rebellion, our treason that deserves death. So when we think about God's purpose, 
and we're tempted to despair because it feels like there is no purpose to my life. Or maybe these things that are happening, I don't know why. It seems that there's no meaning to our struggles. 2 Corinthians 4.17 reminds us that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. That there's no need to despair for God loves his people and he works all things, even things that seem terrible, he's going to work it to good. So the psalmist in these verses, he's expanding and building our view of God to this great being that we can't even comprehend. And where should that lead us? It should lead us into greater love and worship and obedience of him. And so we say in the next two verses in 17, 18, how precious are God's thoughts, his very word. They're so innumerable, we can't even count them. They're more than the grains of the sand upon the earth. And so we praise him who's always with us who knows us, who guides us. And as we grow in our love, worship, and adoration, and praise of God, we also grow in our hatred of what's contrary to God. So if we think about this way, the more you love your spouse, the more you love your marriage, you hate anything that would break or destroy that, whether that's divorce, any form of fornication, whether adultery or pornography, or what have you. Or the more you love your children, the more you would hate to see harm come upon them. And the Lord's the same way. He says, it'd be better for someone to have a millstone tied around their neck and thrown into the depths of the sea than to harm one of the little ones. And because you love your child, you discipline them because you want the best for them. Proverbs 13.24 tells us, that whoever spares the rod hates his son, that he who loves him is diligent to discipline them. And God too, as it says in Hebrews 12, he disciplines those whom he loves, his children, those who he chose to adopt into his family. That he loves them and disciplines them to guide them. So when we think about God's wrath, God's hatred, it says towards these men of blood. In Psalm 11, 5 it says, The soul of the Lord hates the wicked and the lover of violence. Why? Because it's his creation. The creation that was made in his image. And when that's marred and destroyed, what did he do in Noah's days? He wiped it out because of our violence. But then he gave the promise that he wouldn't do that again. That instead he'd provide a way of redemption. That he'd set aside his bow and would work a way of grace. So then, when we think about hate, hatred is required of the things that we love, that we hate the things that would harm the things that we love. So two then it says in verse 22, the psalmist hates with complete hatred the enemies of God. So who are these enemies we are to hate? Is it the flesh and blood of sinners who are just like we once were? No. Ephesians uh, 
6.12 tells us we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil, the heavenly places, that those are the enemies of God that we hate. When we think about the enemies that are flesh and blood that are set and opposed against God, what we are called to do is what Christ did for us. In Romans 5, 8, and 10, it says, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And then Romans 12 and 19 through 21, it tells us that we're to love our physical flesh and blood enemies the same way Christ loved us. Paul writes, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning holes on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, this love of our enemies doesn't mean we neglect justice or cover up wrongdoing. No, like the verses right after that talk about the good that government authorities do, that they bear the sword of justice, that when wrong is committed that's serious, we bring it to the police and the governing authorities. But we don't take that vengeance personally upon ourselves. Instead, we leave that to the Lord and the authorities that he put in place. So we love our physical enemies, but we hate our spiritual enemies. This enemy, the spiritual forces of darkness, they seek to deceive and devour mankind by uniting with our own sin and with the empty philosophies of the world. Colossians 2.8 warns us to see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. So then we, talk, we need to think about, all right, so we hate these enemies of sin, of philosophies of this world, of darkness, and we ask, how do we battle these? Jesus told Pilate in John 18, 36, that his kingdom's not of this world, that if his kingdom were of this world, his servants would have been fighting, that he wouldn't be delivered over to the Jews for death, but instead his kingdom is not from the world. So what we fight with is with the sword of the Spirit, as it says in Ephesians 6 and Hebrews 4, and we arm ourselves with the armor of God. And 2 Corinthians 10 tells us that we these weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That it's not physical warfare, it is spiritual warfare against these enemies of God that we are to hate. And so we need to remember when we look at sinners that are just we once were, that we need to show them the love that Christ shown us. That we also need to remember that sin is serious, that God hates sin, and so should we. We need to hate sin, these philosophies of the world that seek to deceive and devour us, and these forces of darkness against us, that Christ already conquered on the cross, and that we're more than conquerors in, as it says in Romans 8. So then, as we see God in greater measure in the psalm, 
It increases our love and worship of him. And as we grow in our love, we grow in our hatred of what is against God. But we need to remember that's hatred against not just sin in general, but our own sin. The sin in our own lives. Because we need to grow in our obedience as we see the greatness of God. So, like in these closing verses of the psalm, we cry out to God, Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there be any grievous way in me, and when there is, lead me in the way of everlasting. So, when we think of salvation, our justification is completely of God. It's not part of us at all. We contribute absolutely nothing. But then when we think about our sanctification as God grows us in holiness, that part of our salvation, we partnership with God. That he binds our wounds, he empowers us, he renews us, and enables us to walk with him through his spirit. But he doesn't run for us. We have to run the race. We have to be obedient to God. We must, as it says in Philippians 2, that we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that God is at work in us. We do this, as it says in Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, we run with endurance the race set before us, stripping aside every sin and weight that clings closely. And we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So if we love God, we must hate our sin. Because our sin, as we sang earlier, it drove the bitter nails into our Savior. It crucified our Lord and dishonors his name. And so we must take up our cross every day and die to ourselves, not being apathetic or indifferent to the seriousness of sin. But we need to, as Jesus tells us, to be figuratively willing to gouge out our eyes and chop off our limbs to combat sin. And as the great Puritan John Owen wrote, We must be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. So as we see God in greater measure, as it increases our love of God, our worship of God, and our obedience to God, we need to remember when we're tempted to despair, that he knows his people intimately, that he's always with us, that he's guiding us, that he has a plan that will not be prevented from happening. And as we think and ponder over the word of God and we grow in knowing just how great God is with greater clarity and measure, we need to pray that we see even with more and more clear eyes the grace found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that even when we were sinners, when we were enemies, treasonous, deserving of death. God, being rich in mercy, sent Christ to die for his people's sins. And so let's see the good news of Jesus Christ growing in his grace and knowledge as we realize more and more the depths of our sin. Not that lead us to despair, but see Christ more fully, growing our love and our worship of God leading us to repenting of our sins and believing in Christ in greater and greater measure for our salvation. We walk in obedience, hating 
and destroying the sin in our lives because seeing God in greater measure increases our love and worship and obedience of him. Now when we think of this psalm, it is of great comfort to those that follow Christ. All these truths and promises of God knowing his people, of being with them, of guiding them. But if you're not in Christ, all that's in this psalm for you is verse 19. That God will slay the wicked. That this is the death that everyone is deserving for their rebellion against God. And the only hope for your salvation is not in yourself, but it's in Jesus Christ. And trusting in him for salvation, repenting of your sins and believing in him. There's no other cure for your sin other than Christ. Let's pray. God, you search and know your people. You know our very thoughts, our very prayers, our very words before we even say them. And yet you desire to know us. You're always with us. Wherever we go, wherever we feel that the darkness clouds us, you are still there, no matter where. God, you formed our very days. You are sovereign. You are all-powerful. Nothing can stand before your will. That what you say happens, Lord. So God, let us see you in greater and greater measure and let that grow us in our love and worship of you. Let that lead us to greater and greater obedience as we run this race that Christ laid before us. And if we don't know you, God, I pray that you open our eyes to the grace and mercy found in Christ. As it says in Romans 2, your kindness would lead us to repentance. So God, our hope is in you, is in your Son, is in your Spirit. We pray these things. Amen.